Our scripture reading today comes from the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to the childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, and the greatest of these is love. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks to be God. Let us pause for a word of prayer. Holy God, we give you thanks for young voices. We give you thanks for rustling and for church. We give you thanks for your word that we listen to so carefully. Bring us your hope and your love, we pray this day. Amen. So there's two scripture texts in this Sunday, and um, the one that, that the children were listening to had to do with, the, with Jesus going to the synagogue. So it's a kind of a continuation from last Sunday, goes to the synagogue, and it's his hometown church. And then we have this other scripture text, which is 1 Corinthians. So it's, there's something that goes, they kind of relate to each other in a strange way. So I'm going to read the Luke text, and you tell me, see if you can hear how they relate, okay? Then he began to say to them, Jesus, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, 
Doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do hear also in your hometown the things we have heard you did in Capernaum. And he said, truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah when the heaven was shut up for three and six months. And there were a severe famine all over the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to the widow in Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel at the time the prophet of Elisha. And none of them were cleansed except for Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up and they drove him out of town and led him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through them, went on his way. Did you hear the, con the continuation? I bet you don't. You don't hear it. It's okay. It's okay. That's what this sermon's about, okay? <laughs> In Luke, Jesus goes to his home congregation where he grew up, and he reads from Isaiah 61. And it's right at the very beginning of his ministry. And everyone is so proud of this young man they watched grow up. And then he says some things that ignites a fury in this sweet, loving congregation. What is that all about? They get so angry at what he says that they're ready to throw him off a cliff. Was he just so inexperienced that he didn't know how to phrase his teachings? Or was he just so familiar that they remember him? They can take it seriously because they remember when he was up here in a children's message and picking his nose. <laughs> it had to be more than that. Had to be. Or was it the anxiety of hearing a truth that they were not ready to hear yet? A truth that was embedded in their tradition, but blind to them until Jesus spoke. Jesus mentioned the story of Elijah's visit to the Gentile, not the Jewish, but the Gentile widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And Elisha healing the Gentile Syrian commander Naaman with leprosy. What Jesus essentially says to all of those gathered people of God is, when we set the oppressed free, God does not mean just the oppressed of our people. Barbara Brown Taylor writes that we should expect to be upset by the truth. That's how we keep from confusing our own ideas about God with God. Then there's the Corinthians passage where Paul addresses the church in their, their upheaval. Now, all through, he had to write a whole book about this. You know, Corinthians hit several chapters. He's talking to the Corinthians like, hey, this is what it means to be the church. You're a body. You have many members. There's apostles and there's prophets and teachers. And no one is better than another. And the spiritual gifts are nothing to boast about because they come from God. And then he claims that there's a more excellent way. The way called love. Sounds like a sappy pop song title, doesn't it? All the more reason why Paul's message needs to be preached. Paul describes love not as a spiritual gift itself, 
but as a way in which we practice all our gifts. He speaks about the primacy of love, the character of love, the endurance of love. In Corinthians, we become familiar to the text because it's read at weddings so often. And yes, it's not just for weddings. The familiarity in that text can make us blind to the truth. It fits at weddings because it reminds everyone present that the infatuation that we feel in the beginning of a relationship is not the full depth of love. It fits at weddings because it names that hard stuff of relationships that come later as we get more familiar with each other. And it reminds us that it is not an individual character trait or a personal attitude that we can possess, but really, it's the presence of God. When we are not patient or kind or truthful or believing or hoping or enduring, when we are envious and boastful and arrogant, rude, irritable or resentful, he's just speaking about the Corinthians, right? No, he's speaking about us too. When the honeymoon is over, newlyweds, the work of relationship begins. That love that Paul talks about is the ideal that we shoot for. It's God's love for us. It is God that is patient and kind and rejoices in the truth, believes in us and hopes for us and endures forever. When our humanness gets the best of us, it is that kind of love that centers us so that we can say, I'm sorry, or I forgive you. The common theme in these two texts is anxiety. That's the snow coming off the roof. Isn't that fun? One time I told the kids that it was a dragon. <laughs> we kept him behind the doors back here. Do you remember that, Drew? <laughs> All right, back to, back to work. These two texts are about anxiety. Corinthian anxiety focused on the competition about greater and lesser gifts. Paul, the teacher and the church starter, is advising Corinthians to practice their God-given gifts with love. Speak the truth with love. And Jesus spoke to the congregation in Nazareth, Anxiety focused on insiders and outsiders. Inclusion was the big message. Loving your neighbor as yourself, and your neighbor is the outsider. Well, guess what? All relationship systems, and church is one of them, become anxious emotional fields from time to time. When pe put people together, and inevitably anxiety will arise. So what is the truth? that we are not ready to hear. What edges are we facing? David Lee Jones is a fellow in the American Association of Pastoral Counselors and he writes, anxious emotional fields have predictable features. Let's see if we can hear any. When anxiety increases, there is an increased desire for information or data. And anxiety causes persons to regress and behave less maturely. Secrets, blaming, gossip, rash decisions, parking lot meetings increase. 
When anxiety escalates, so does the need for togetherness and herd mentality. Anxious persons focus more on blaming others than on their own functioning and responsibility, which results in a loss of effective mission and mature vision. Anxiety causes people to forget or abdicate their core values and principles. As calm and rational thinking decreases, rash and reactive behavior increases. Anxious persons expect leaders to do for them rather than maturely lead them. As clearly seriousness increases, playfulness, creativity, imagination, and adventure, and humor dissipate. Things are changing for us. If you're new and, or if you're a kid, you may not know all the details, but you can feel it. Where has our anxiety settled? The budget, the council, staff, or is it still that free-floating anxiety? And anxiety can be a good thing. It's an alarm bell. It's at the center, and at the center of it is uncertainty. And still, anxiety can be our deliverance, if it is well-managed. It motivates, provokes change, it pushes, pushes toward innovation and transformation. If I could identify the emotional pain of our anxiety, I would say that it is the fear of becoming irrelevant. There's fear of disappearing and no longer visible as a congregation. No one to carry out the programs and the ministries that identify us as that church. What are values under our fear? Community, human connection, social justice, or making a difference, spiritual experience, or meaning-making. Church, as we know it today, is a strategy to accomplish those values. And can that strategy change and adapt to the changing times without losing its integrity? Of course. The only thing to impede that transformation is when anxiety is not managed well. The familiar begins to blind us. We fear loss. Loss of staff or members of the church. Loss of traditions that mean something to us. Loss of identity in the congregation. Loss of identity in the community. And not knowing who we are anymore. In family therapy, it is called self-definition that manages anxious fields, recalling who we are. We are, as a congregation, those who embrace the mystery of God and who set the table for all who hunger and thirst. Being God's beloved children defines us, too, and helps us to cope. God defines God's self as love, a particular kind of love. The Greek word Paul used was agape. Ancient Greeks had several words to describe love. Eros, storge, philia, ludus, pragma, philusia, and agape. Agape is selfless love, 
selfless, unconditional love. This type of love is not the sentimental outpouring that often passes as love in our society. Agape is what some call spiritual love. Its unconditional love is bigger than ourselves, boundless compassion, infinite empathy. Its purest form of love that is free from desires and expectations and loves regardless of the flaws and shortcomings of others. Agape is a love that we intuitively know as the divine truth. A love that accepts, forgives, and believes for our greater good. It's also the central ingredient to make nonviolence possible. MLK wrote, agape is not weak, passive love. It is love in action. Agape is willingness to go to any length to restore community. It is a willingness to forgive not seven times, but 70 times seven to restore community. If I respond to hate with the reciprocal hate, I do nothing but intensify the cleavage in broken community. I can only close the gap in broken community by meeting hate with love. Well, they're having fun up there, aren't they? (laughs) The excellent way of love can manage our anxiety as we define ourselves as God's beloved. Focusing on the love of God as a way to move through our change can enable us to capture our values anew. As church, we are the agents of God's love in the world. Parker Palmer, American author, educator, and activist, writes, The mission of the church is not to enlarge its membership. It's not to bring outsiders in to accept us on our terms. It is simply to love the world in every way possible as God does. I believe that church is important. Where else can we gather with the challenge to love one another as God loves us? Where else can we learn to love the world in all of its messiness? So we have a little anxiety over the changes we face. I felt anxiety writing this sermon. And reflecting on these two texts, it's clear. God's not done with us yet. We got this. Amen.